0: but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. The power of doubt for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor and this is Provocative Enlightenment. Here in the studio with me is my partner, Ravinder. And she's feeling intimidated today. So I'm going to ask her to say hello to everyone to share her special insight, and to tell, you know, share with us why why she's so intimidated by today's show.
1: Well, hello, everyone. Um, yes, I am rather intimidated by today's show. I don't even know I can say the words. There's Schopenhauer and there's pen something or other yeah. that Eldon was talking about. What's the word again? And psychism. Yeah, he asked me to define it, and I said, uh, do I add some garlic in the pan to that or not? (laughs) So yeah, today is going to be um, very educational for me too, so um, I hope you enjoy it, and uh, yeah, if you have any questions, come to the uh, app page on Facebook, just search for provocativeenlightenment.com. If you have any questions, if you get lost at all, just post a note there, and I will tell... Eldon here to get some things to find for us.
0: Okay, well now the show is not really about panpsychism, it's about consciousness, and of course panpsychism is one of those theories that we'll be discussing, but our guest today is one of those thinkers that I just admire how he thinks, I just, I love what he does, how he writes, etc. And like all bright minds, he has the ability to take the most complicated of thoughts and say them in a way that everybody understands them. So I'm sure you're going to love
2: the show.
1: I am. You know, I, I'm actually winding on you a little bit. We've had uh, we've had Bernardo on the show before, and it was fascinating. So, no, I'm, I am looking forward to it. I'm just... All right. Yeah.
0: In today's spotlight, I wish to address the notion of a truth, and through the thinking of one of the world's great philosophers, at least in my mind, that of Soren Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard learned a way of thinking, a way of life, from Socrates. Kierkegaard sought a truth for which he was willing to live and die. A truth for which he was willing to live and die. Think about that. Nowhere is Kierkegaard's life intention captured better than in the words of Hans Friedrich Helweg, who, about a month after Kierkegaard died, published an article entitled Hegelianism in Denmark. A large part of Helvig's article focuses on a review of Kierkegaard's master's thesis, The Concept of Irony. Helvig makes his statement, quote, The members of the faculty of philosophy who were supposed to judge the work hardly suspected that in this effort of a young author they had not so much a qualification for a master's degree but a program for life, that here it was, not a matter of giving a solution to an academic problem, but of a task for life. Socrates remained a central focus of Kierkegaard's work throughout his life. For Kierkegaard, as with Socrates himself, the subjective appropriation of knowledge was the foundation of an examined life. Only in this way could one come to truly comprehend. The practice of negation exposed ignorance and the practice of subjective appropriation individualized meaning in a truly existential manner. The use of irony was the path used to uncover ineptitude in those who would offer the positive, a so-called truth or higher understanding. Indeed, Kierkegaard's concept of appropriation led to his denial that he was himself a Christian, and he insisted that he was able to make it manifest that others were not also. Kierkegaard defined a Christian in such an ideal sense that it was impossible for anyone to be a Christian. Strangely enough, Kierkegaard held that Socrates had become a Christian, One is forced to review Kierkegaard's Christian ideal definition to see what he means by this assertion. Socrates lived a poor life, teaching without taking money. Socrates mixed with the people and challenged the words of the sophist with his irony. Socrates endured ridicule. He gave his life for his truth, and so forth. This is the way Jesus taught and the way the New Testament informs us the early Christians lived. It is also something Kierkegaard personally identified with. He, too, had been attacked by ridicule and condemnation. He, too, was willing to die for what he believed. He, too, walked the streets with the common people. And he, too, was a teacher. Why does this all matter, especially today? The fact is the connection between Socrates and Kierkegaard is still relevant in the world we live in at a time when we are all too easily lost in the pursuit of consumerism. More, more, and more as an added drive. It is an era of technology where we are inundated on a 24-7 basis with advertising designed to convince us that we are somehow deficient and therefore need the product or services being advertised. We spend hours in front of television, smartphones, computers, pads, and the like, sometimes easily lost in a world of avatars and anonymous warriors. People comment on social media due to their anonymity in ways they would never think of speaking in person. We are so what to believe by the billion-dollar complexes intent on owning our beliefs. As a result, it is easy to become lost in the crowd. Socrates is quoted by Plato in the *Apology* as saying, quote, "An unexamined life is not worth living." Close quote. Today's world, perhaps more than in the day of Kierkegaard, is in need of reflection and appropriation. Surrounded by science, pseudoscience, new age culture, old age doctrines, and so much more, that more often than not contradict one another in different ways appropriating the knowledge available to us in the sense used by Kierkegaard would appear to be a requirement of the examined life. For myself, Kierkegaard and Socrates represent the necessary approach required for any true deep inquiry. For how is a person to investigate the unknowable with the intent to identify, label, and define? It is, as Kierkegaard put it, paraphrase some, what would you like to discover that thought cannot think? Those are my thoughts, anyway. As always, I welcome yours. How about you, Ravinder? What do you think?
1: You know, I, I like that. I mean, I was, I was actually taken by the uh, Kierkegaard quote where you say a truth for well, you're talking about a truth for which he's willing to live and die. And um, I think, I think all of us should be thinking about that because in there we can find what our own lives really mean what is really important I'm not thinking about you know wars and stuff like that I'm talking about the values about you know what is it that that is the most important to us so no that had that had a great deal of appeal to me
0: what is uh, what is it all about I mean you know so many people I think today, I've uh, just accepted that life is about work and fun and play and consumerism, you know, and, uh, you know, can't wait till I get the new suit or the new car or, you know, we buy that new house, looking forward to moving, you know, we're building an empire where, you know, uh, I, I need to find a job, uh, all of those kinds of things, they're the... They're the equivalent of what so many want to call a meat machine. You know we are just driven for uh, the purpose of consuming life in some way or another, as opposed to thinking about um, the meaning of life from a higher standpoint uh, from from the perspective of uh, an eternal life, uh, a more meaningful sense to our our create uh, our, our abilities to be here in the first place that, that's my thinking anyway. I know you share that so if you want to add to it go right ahead.
1: No I do absolutely uh, you know I think all the other things are, are distractions all the consumption stuff you know they're all distractions. you have to stop looking at that and start deciding what is really important and it can really vary. You know, it can be relationships. It can it can be not career, but, you know, just those things that you want to achieve in life. Uh, there's a whole variety of stuff, but I do think the vast majority of people don't give it any thought. They just pass through life um, competing with Joe next door.
0: You're going to love what our today's guest has to say about um, how our expression of life is uh, somewhat uh, the experience that mm, the Creator and I'm not gonna, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna use any other term there. He's gonna use other terms, but uh, that which is behind our being informs the Creator of. In other words, how we live, how we reflect. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured David Ditchfield, and we discussed his book Shine On. Amy wrote, I checked out his art and music. Wow, is all I can say. You know, Amy, I tried meditating to his inspired music, Divine Light, and when the meditation concluded, I took my blood pressure, and it was unbelievably low. It's my meditation music now. Richard wrote, exciting show, one of my favorite subjects. Mike wrote, isn't it amazing how NDE experiencers return being more capable, having experienced AMDE? I contend it is because we return with fewer fears. Fewer fears means there is less resistance, keeping one in bounds, so to speak. No fears remove the chains which bind. Moving on, Emily wrote, I am using and always recommending Inner Talk to my friends, family, and clients. Candace wrote, I did a reading this week with a woman who sang your praises. She has gained much from your audios. I know you reach a lot of people, but thought you'd like to know. I do. Thank you, Candace. AJ commented, to change your subconscious mind and the way it talks to you. Check out Ellen Taylor and his Inner Talk programs. I have experienced phenomenal success with his programs and recommend them to everyone. Well, thank you, AJ. I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We are humbled and grateful for your feedback. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email at Elden, Eldon, E-L-D-O-N, Eldon at com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That is to today's show. Decoding Schopenhauer's Metaphysics with author Bernardo Castrop. This is a great read. You're going to want to go get this book, I guarantee you. Dr. Castrop has been with us before, but it was four years ago, so let me tell you a little about him. Bernardo Castrop's work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism the notion that his reality is essentially mental. He has a Ph.D. in philosophy, ontology, philosophy of mind, and another Ph.D. in computer engineering, reconfigurable computing, artificial intelligence. As a scientist, Dr. Kastrup has worked for the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, and the Philips Research Laboratories where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. Formulated in detail in many academic papers and books, his ideas have been featured on Scientific America, the Institute of Arts and Ideas, the blog of American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, among others. Bernardo's most recent book is The Idea of the World, a Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality. Today, we're going to be discussing his work, Decoding Schopenhauer's Metaphysics. But no doubt, as brilliant as this man is, that's going to spread out over a lot of his work, and I recommend it all. He is a great thinker. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Bernardo Castro.
3: Hello, Eldon. Good to be here again.
0: It's good to have you, sir. We, as you know, like to learn three things from our guests on this show. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And, of course, how do we use it? To that end, please share with us what you're passionate about and why.
3: I'm passionate about philosophy for the same reason that uh, Soren Kierkegaard, that you referred to earlier today, was passionate about philosophy. I think philosophy is not a conceptual game that academic philosophers play during the day, like a, a match of chess. And then at the end of the day, they go back home and philosophy is forgotten. For me, philosophy is that which informs our lives, informs how we interpret the world, how we look upon ourselves and others. And I'm very passionate about philosophy, therefore, because uh, I'm passionate about life.
0: Yeah, I share your thoughts there. You're today's spotlight. What have I got wrong, Dr. Kastrup?
3: I think you've got, uh, gotten nothing wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. <And> then right. <clears throat> you've written many books and articles, and, and I'll ask you about some of your thoughts from more than one, if you don't mind today. But that said, let's begin with some definitions, hopefully in order to erect some constructs that everyone can understand. You're a proponent of something known as metaphysical idealism. The notion that reality is essentially mental. Please flesh this out for us and provide some rationale behind your thinking, if you would, sir.
3: Okay, so let's, let's take the two words apart. Uh, metaphysical idealism. So first, metaphysics. What is metaphysics? It has gotten a popular definition that is not correct. Um, We tend to think of it as something spiritual or transcendent. But metaphysics simply means that which is behind physics. Physics is the study of the behavior of nature. And what what lies behind behavior, it is essence, it is being. Something needs to be uh, in order for it to behave. So metaphysics, unlike physics, is the study of the inner essence of things. What things are as opposed to how they behave. And idealism uh, should actually be called ideaism. It's just difficult to pronounce, but it's not about ideals, it's about ideas. And what it basically says is that uh, the essence of everything, the essence of matter, of everything that exists, is mental, experiential in nature. It's not something different from mind in kind, it is just A transpersonal mind if it's not part of a a living being, but it is essentially mental or experiential.
0: All right. Now, obviously, you're suggesting that uh, using Aristotle's use of metaphysics, we'll use his term, the unmoved mover, that the unmoved mover, or the first cause behind things, is mental. And I want to get to that, what Schopenhauer Calls Will, but I I want you first to explain why decoding Schopenhauer's metaphysics, because I I found that story as you went looking for the roots of your thinking very interesting. Please share that with us.
3: I've uh, arrived at my thinking over a period of years, uh, but mostly based on, you know, scientific evidence, uh, reasoning, Uh, And eventually I arrived where I arrived uh, with my book, uh, um, uh, The Idea of the World. It was book number seven, I think, a whole series. Um, And then I started, as you suggested, I started looking for the roots uh, of of these ideas that I've developed. I couldn't believe that others hadn't arrived at the same conclusion. Certainly in the East, there were many uh, Advaita Vedanta traditions, for instance, the Vedas. Uh, but in the West, I couldn't believe that uh, there, there weren't other people who arrived at the same conclusions. And um, after a quick search, I found that uh, Schopenhauer, in fact, had arrived at very, very similar, uh, equivalent uh, conclusions. But his conclusions were distorted by, by academics, people who made their professional lives out of interpreting uh, Schopenhauer and writing about Schopenhauer had actually made a mess of Schopenhauer's metaphysics, uh, which was then misrepresented uh, for decades. Um, The way it was presented to us in the West was not at all what uh, Schopenhauer was trying to convey. And by going back to the source, Schopenhauer himself uh, realized that uh, his metaphysics was the greatest gift, uh, uh, the the main part of his legacy uh, to the West, while uh, in the mainstream narrative of academic philosophy, People poo-poo his metaphysics. They say, well, his metaphysics is nonsensical, uh, but he did something good around ethics uh, or uh, writing style. So he became known for other good things, some bad things. He became known as a misogynist as well or a pessimist, both of which have some core of truth. But his main gift uh, went uh, unrecognized. And for me, it was a great discovery, not only to realize that uh, my thinking had its roots uh, at least 200 years before me, which suggests to me, at least reassures me, that it's not a fashion, it's not a thing that uh, pops up and will be dismissed later. It is a conclusion that has been arrived at before, uh, and and, and it's part of the foundation of Western thinking in a way. Um, But also the pleasure of sort of trying to uh, uh, correct uh, uh, the misrepresentations uh, that were imposed on Schopenhauer and finally present him as I think he wanted to be presented.
0: It is. It's a wonderful book. I think you did an outstanding job on that. So now just for clarity, you, you're you not an advocate of... Uh, the theory of emergent properties as uh, being that which we derive consciousness from. Uh, you, if I understand you, um, you see architecture as, um, a, as a mechanism, um, as, as the, the hardware through which consciousness manifests itself Um, And the human condition is different than, oh, say, a morphogenic field of an acorn or the consciousness of a dog because of that hardware. Have I got that right?
3: Yeah, let's try to unpack this. Um, You alluded to emergence. Well, there are two types of emergence. One is trivial and the other one is an appeal to magic and can be disconsidered. The trivial type is to say, for instance, that uh, sand dunes, emerge out of grains of sand and wind yeah that's true Uh, grains of sand and wind by themselves are not a sand dune but we understand exactly the steps that are taken uh, until they form something like a sand dune so this is trivial and consciousness is not that because we do not understand how uh, uh, the signaling of neurons within our brain can possibly lead to the property of being aware so this weak form of emergency uh, emergence doesn't apply there, and then people appeal to what they call strong emergence, which which they say is a completely novel property that arises in ways we don't understand out of things we do understand. Well, that's a linguistic game. It's an appeal to magic. It's a word to plaster over a gap in our knowledge. We pretend that we know by giving it a name, but we don't know at all what this name means, and it's actually an incoherent name. So, indeed, I'm not an adherent to this absurd uh, theory that if you throw in enough complexity in a nervous system suddenly, and for reasons that nobody can even in principle explain, it lights up with awareness. I think that, that's an absurd, it's a it's a, it's a self-defeating uh, line of thinking. What I think is the case is that uh, what we see, the brain, the structure of a living working brain, is what inner conscious life looks like from a perspective. It's the image of the process, not the cause of the process. The brain is what conscious awareness, uh, it, it, sorry, it's how conscious awareness presents itself to observation from an external perspective. It's not the cause, it's the image. That's my position. And it is Schopenhauer's position as well, by the way.
0: Differentiate your view from the classical panpsychism view uh, that everything is mental.
3: Well, uh, panpsychism is such a broad thing. uh, There are definitions of panpsychism that could be applicable to Schopenhauer and myself. But what most people usually understand by the term is when somebody says that matter is inherently conscious. In other words, next to having material properties so, such as mass, charge, momentum, speed, uh, direction of movement, uh, in addition to all those material properties, matter also has an inherent experiential property. There is something that is like to be an elementary subatomic particle. So uh, defined in this way, Panpsychism is the doctrine that all matter is conscious. What Schopenhauer and I are putting forward is different. We are saying that all matter is in consciousness, not that all matter is conscious.
0: That's a very intriguing point, and I want to flesh that out, but we've got a hard break in front of us, so we'll pick that up after the break. We're speaking with Dr. Bernardo Kastrup about his work and book, decoding schopenhauer's meta schopenhauers i don't know where i got heimer from schopenhauer's metaphysics you can learn more about our guest in his book by visiting his website bernardocastrup.com b e r n a r d o k a s t r u p bernardocastrup.com okay do please stay tuned we'll be right back
4: you're listening to provocative enlightenment with elton taylor Many dogs and cats spend endless days indoors staring at the wall, living for the moment when you will come home and tell them you love them, take them out, and make a fuss over them. Dogs and cats need physical exercise and mental stimulation, things to do and think about in order to be healthy and happy. Please set time aside for them and give them a real life and real love. For more information, please contact People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals at 757-622-PETA. Or helpinganimals.com. That's helpinganimals.com. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean Rowe. I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it, until I used Inner Talk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your Inner Talk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com.
2: A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. And laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts for details go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha
0: the great courses cover a broad array of university level disciplines the lectures in each course are either 30 or 45 minutes long by listening for less than an hour a day you can finish even the longest course in just weeks. Browse our catalog or website at thegreatcourses.com and imagine how much you can learn if you spent just 30 minutes a day for the next year in the best college classrooms in the world. The lecturers are university professors carefully selected by The Great Courses and its customers for intellectual distinction and teaching excellence.
1: Hi, this is Bill Maher. I can find humor in almost anything, but one thing I never laugh about is cruelty to animals. If you don't get the joke either, write People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, 501 Front Street, Norfolk, Virginia, 23510.
2: New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself, and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. Inner Talk has over 300 programs to choose from, ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success, from accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to InnerTalk.com today.
1: Hi, I'm Peter Singer. Many people would like to help those in great need in developing countries, but they don't really know whether a donation will do good. They wonder if the money will get to the people who need it. Now you can find the best organisations by going to www.thelifeyoucansave.org and clicking on Where to Donate. The Life You Can Save doesn't take any money from the organisations it recommends. It's simply trying to do the best it can. Thank you.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Bernardo Kastrup about his work and book, Decoding Schopenhauer's Metaphysics. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting bernardocastrup.com. One word, Bernardo K-A-S-T-R-U-P dot com. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them, real meaning. Music psychology, as you know by now, is an interest of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas. Your chosen music, Dr. Kastrup, is Vivaldi's La Folia, Madness, Apollo's Fire. So please tell us, why is this music important to you, and more importantly, sir, how does it inform us about who you are?
3: When the music started playing, I had that thought, oh, what a coincidence, you're playing one of my favorites. And then I remembered, (laughs) I suggested it. (laughs) Oh, La Folia, Madness. Um, I I couldn't put in words uh, the effect it has on me, but it catches me immediately. Whatever I'm thinking about, whatever is worrying me, when it begins, it catches my attention fully. Maybe because I'm a mad guy and... (laughs) And I, like, and I like music about madness. That's the best I can say.
0: Well, all right. I'll, I'll take that. I have no comment on that. I don't think you're a mad guy, but okay. All right. Um, before the break, uh, I suggested to you that I'd like you to flesh out a little bit the ramifications involved in the difference in the ideas of matter as in consciousness versus matter as
3: conscious. Right. So, uh, in, the la- uh, sorry, in the former, um, what we are saying is that matter exists and it has consciousness. In other words, the essence of matter is something further than, beyond consciousness, something else which happens to have consciousness as one of its properties. What Schopenhauer did was to turn it around. Um, like Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant, his predecessor, Schopenhauer acknowledged that all we can know about the world out there is how the world out there presents itself to us on the screen of perception. And of course, matter is the name we give to the contents of the screen of perception, the things we see, hear, taste, touch, smell. Um, but unlike Kant, who said, well, we have to stop here, we cannot make any further statement about the world, because all we know is how it presents itself to us, the thing in itself we don't know. Schopenhauer figured that there is one thing that we know more than just how it presents itself to observation, and that is we ourselves. We not only observe ourselves, we, we are ourselves we have a inside perspective a first person perspective of ourselves next to the image on the mirror that we perceive and then he started asking okay uh, what is this thing that i am if i introspect and forget about perception close my eyes uh, uh, switch off the sound and and i just introspect what is it that i find in there what is the essence of me the thing in itself that i am And he figured that that was uh, fear, desire, and other uh, endogenous experiential states uh, related to volition. The things we feel, so I would just call them feelings. He figured that we are feelings. That's what we are from a first-person perspective, the thing in itself. And our feelings, which which are what we are, present themselves to the observation of others, or even to ourselves uh, on the mirror, as the matter that constitutes our body. So for Schopenhauer, matter is what feelings look like from a certain perspective, at least in his own case. But then he reasoned, well, the rest of the world is also made of matter. It's also constituted of the same atoms and force fields that my body is constituted of. And then he figured that, okay, then matter in general is the representation, the appearance, of inner feelings, and that should apply to the world at large as well. The inanimate universe, too, which we call the material universe, should also be the way inner feelings, but transpersonal ones, uh, look like from our perspective, the way these inner transpersonal feelings present themselves to observation. So for Schopenhauer, matter uh, consciousness is not a property of matter. No, it's the other way around. Uh, uh, Matter is the way consciousness presents itself to consciousness under certain circumstances. In other words, uh, matter is in consciousness and exists by virtue of consciousness. That's what matter is. Consciousness is not a property of matter.
0: Okay, now the materialist might counter that feelings are indeed matter. They're largely neurochemicals. You're a hard scientist as well as a trained philosopher. As a scientist, what are your thoughts then on the the present emph- emphasis uh, toward materialistic reductionism, or the you know what that is—the notion that only the material world, um, matter itself, is truly real, and that it all processes and realities observed in the universe can be explained by reducing them down to their most basic scientific components. Again, neurochemicals, atoms, molecules, and everything else that
3: makes up matter. As a scientist, what I have are observations. And the observation is that many of my inner experiential states, the things I think, the things I feel, correlate with configurations of matter in my brain that correlation exists it is undeniable um, you don't need you don't even need to be a scientist to know that if you drink alcohol something will change in your conscious inner life if a surgeon brings a scalpel to your brain and starts cutting around something will happen uh, uh, to your conscious inner life the things you think the things you feel will be affected by that so that correlation is undeniable the problem is that we have a bad habit that has been going on for three or four hundred years now and became mainstream at the end of the 19th century where we turn this correlation which is observed into causation which is inferred and nobody knows how it works we say then that the matter in the brain causes experience but look at the alternative what schopenhauer was putting forward is that the matter in the brain is the way conscious inner life looks like or presents itself so that also explains the correlations. The image of the process correlates with the process. <laughs> it's the image of the process. Of course it will correlate with it. And if all matter is just what the experience looks like, then it's no surprise that a surgeon's scalpel interfering with the matter in your brain would change your inner life because the matter of the scalpel too is also The appearance of transpersonal experiential states that interfere with your personal experiential states. The image of that interference is a scalpel cutting into brain tissue. But what is actually happening in essence, according to Schopenhauer and to me, um, is that you have transpersonal experiential states affecting your personal experiential states. And this is trivial. Our thoughts affect our emotions all the time and the other way around, our emotions impact our thoughts, that certain experiences can modulate or influence or affect other experiences is trivial. And for Schopenhauer, that's all that was going on. Materialism is uh, an unexamined metaphysics that gathered a lot of momentum because back at, at its origins, scientists had a common enemy, which was the church, the power of the church. And they had to sort of rally around an alternative metaphysics to that of the church, which was religious dualism. And they rallied around uh, materialism because they had a common enemy. They didn't really think it through. It has been only (laughs) towards the end of the 20th century and the early 21st century that we started thinking this through. And there are many reasons, empirical and logical, to say that materialism is untenable, perhaps even incoherent, which doesn't mean that there aren't these correlations between feeling and brain activity. Of course they are, but they can be explained in a different way, just as Schopenhauer did already 200 years ago.
0: Wonderful explanation. Thank you. All right. Dig just a little bit deeper. You essentially are a non-dualist. In other words... A monist or one who attributes oneness or singleness to existence. One of your critics stays at, states this about your non-dualistic position. Quote, As a non-dualist, Bernardo takes the position that particular experiences, that is, particular contents of mind, are just mind in movement. Given that Bernardo defines mind as a synonym for consciousness, This amounts to a conflation of consciousness and experience. Such a conflation is difficult in my view to reconcile with Bernardo's other assertion that idealism does not entail that rocks and chairs experience things subjectively the way you and I do. In other words, whilst rocks and chairs are nothing but minded movement, a.k.a. consciousness, they are at the same time non conscious this amounts to consciousness being non-conscious, absurd on its face. <laughs> Is that criticism valid in your view, and if not, why, sir?
3: I'll give it to the critic that it's well-articulated. He tried to think uh, think things through, but uh, he, he didn't quite uh, get it right. Uh, let, let's try to, to unpack this. Um, as an idealist, I think everything that exists is a movement of consciousness, a, a pattern of excitation of consciousness, and that there is only consciousness, one universal consciousness, which excites itself according to myriad patterns that give rise to our inner life, give rise to the world out there, give rise to everything. Now, is this in itself uh, surprising or contradictory with mainstream ways of thinking? No, not at all, because modern physics also says that if you go into M-theory, an attempt to unify relativity and and quantum mechanics, uh, uh, they they go down the exact same uh, road. They say, well, there is only one hyperdimensional brain in existence, and all existence are, in fact, patterns of excitation of this one hyperdimensional brain or membrane, whatever you want to call it. And the reason to appeal to these movements is to explain diversity when you start from the one. If there is only one thing, how do you explain diversity? Well, that one thing can move in different ways. One dancer can dance many different choreographies. One lake can ripple in many different ways. So this is a mainstream way to reconcile a reduction base of one. In other words, the attempt to explain everything in terms of one thing to reconcile this attempt with the observable fact that there is variety. So that's all I am doing. Now, to say this is to say that everything is in consciousness and and is made of consciousness, because consciousness is the, the ground level of reality. But to say this doesn't mean that everything is conscious in the way you and I are. In other words, that everything has a private conscious inner life of its own. Um, here's a way to think about this. Your brain is constituted of gazillions of neurons. Is there something it is like to be one neuron in your brain in and of itself, as far as you are aware? No, there isn't. There is only something it is like to be you, Eldon, as a whole. One neuron in your brain is a nominal, an artificial division of that image of conscious experience that we call a brain. There is nothing it's like to be a neuron in and of itself inside your brain. A neuron doesn't have private inner life of its own. Only Eldon has. And a neuron is part of Eldon. So a neuron is part of the image, the appearance, the representation of Eldon's conscious inner life. The same applies to the rest of the world. To say that the inanimate universe exists by virtue of consciousness doesn't mean that my computer or mobile phone or a table or a chair uh, has a private conscious inner life of its own. Uh, Dividing the inanimate world into tables, chairs, cars, telephones is nominal. It's by convenience. Out there, there is only one inanimate universe that behaves itself according to certain laws. Uh, There is no such a thing as a car separate from the rest of the world. A car doesn't work without the gravity that pulls it to the road, uh, without the air that cools the engine and allows for combustion. There is only one integrated, entangled, inanimate universe, and we divide it by convenience into objects. But that division is nominal, and therefore we cannot attribute a fundamental characteristic such as having private conscious inner life to something that comes to existence only nominally, by means of language, something that is not separate in and of itself anyway, in the same way that a neuron in your head is not separate in and of itself. So I think my position is perfectly coherent. I'm saying everything is in consciousness, everything Everything exists by virtue of movements of consciousness, but that doesn't mean that everything that we can divide nominally in language has a private inner life of its own. This, this privacy of inner life is a dissociative process in universal consciousness. We are such dissociative processes. Life is such a dissociative process. process. Uh, metabolism is what this process looks like to observation. Um, a table and a chair don't metabolize. A computer doesn't metabolize. A computer is not alive. So I don't see any empirical reason at all to say that a computer or a table or a chair has a dissociated private conscious in their life of its own.
0: All right, let me pursue that if I can. Uh, I'm jumping a little bit ahead of where I wanted to be, but I think it's appropriate follow-up. If I've got this wrong, correct me, because uh, my question um, is predispositioned by my understanding. Schopenhauer's use of will, we might compare to Aristotle's Unmoved Mover. I don't want to use religious terms here. But if I understand you correctly, the will, the, the creative force, uh, the intelligence of the universe and, and more, the will, Um, knows itself, learns itself through the actions of us. Mm -hmm. If that's the instance with so many of us, how, I mean, if a neuron, a single neuron cannot know itself, or I cannot know that single neuron, how can the will know itself itself? through the multitude of humans that inhabit the world.
3: Yeah, my point with the neuron was that to speak of a separate neuron is, is, is purely nominal. There is no separate neuron out there in nature. With, it's like taking a photograph and choosing the reddish pixels, separating gotcha. them out and saying they, they constitute an object. No, they don't constitute an object. It, it, it's an arbitrary way of delineating things that don't exist in and of themselves. That was gotcha. the, point, the point with, the, with the, neur- the, the, the single neuron. Now, for Schopenhauer... The will at large, the will out there, which is the essence of the world, was what he called a uh, blind. And what he meant by that is that the will is instinctive. It is not deliberate. It's not uh, self-reflective like we are. It doesn't plan things out. It doesn't weigh possible outcomes. It is instinctive, like um, an alligator is instinctive. It behaves according to certain archetypal patterns of behavior, and it's always in the moment, and it's spontaneous. It unfolds spontaneously. That's what he meant by the wheel. But we have evolved this higher-level cognitive skill that we call metacognition or metaconsciousness or self-reflection. And what this means is that not only do we experience things, we know that we experience things. This knowing that we experience things is what allows us to recognize recognize ourselves as subjects of experience as opposed to the experience itself. If I were not metacognitive and I had a bellyache, uh, for all intents and purposes, I would be the bellyache because all that exists in my consciousness is the belly ache. But because I have this metacognitive uh, capacity that human beings have evolved, I know that I am the one who has the bellyache. I know that I have the experience of a bellyache. I am not the ache. I am the subject who has the bellyache. And by the same token, only we know, uh, looking at the world out there, that there is a world out there. (laughs) Uh, We take stock of the world out there at a metacognitive level. We can think about what we perceive, we can objectify what we perceive, take a step back from it and say, wow, that's a world out there, as opposed to just being the world. Uh, which would be the case if we were not uh, metacognitive uh, creatures. And for Schopenhauer, this is what the will is instinctively trying to develop, this awareness of itself through us. And then you would say, well, but there are so many of us. I would say there aren't nearly enough of us to take metacognitive stock of all the aspects of the universe. I think the universe would have to be much, much more crowded with with a life, with different metacognitive conscious perspectives, such that it could take stock of itself in a more complete fashion. I think this process is, 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 is has hardly begun.
0: I've got another question for you. We're running short of time. I mean, I've got sheets of questions here for you. (laughs) I I loved your comment to Andrea when she booked you on the show. Eldon can ask me anything he wants. If I don't want to answer, I'll say so. (laughs) But okay, I'm going to give you one of those. Maybe you're going to say so. Is the will moral...
3: I don't think for Schopenhauer the will is moral. I think Schopenhauer, uh, his motivation for postulating the will to be blind was precisely to take morality away from it. Because Schopenhauer couldn't reconcile the idea of a self-aware, moral, ethical God with the fact that uh, uh, the dance of life is to a large extent uh, a, a horror show. Uh, Suffering is everywhere. Animals kill each other and eat each other alive. I was watching the other day an elephant that was uh, brought down by a pride of lions, and they were eating this elephant alive for six hours before the elephant passed out. And, and you go like, well, it's nature. You know, uh, If the will were moral and metacognitive, would it be doing this to these animals, or better yet, would it be doing this to itself? Because ultimately, all there is is itself, itself through the point of view of different animals. And for Schopenhauer, this couldn't be the case. He thought of the will as amoral. It's, It's neither moral nor immoral. It just doesn't have an ethical code. It's instinctive. It's spontaneous. And morality is something that is developed through the self-reflective contemplation of nature, the contemplation of what the will is doing. So morality arises through us. Uh, It it emerges through us, to use that bad word. Um, But it is not there on the ground level of nature. It's a telos. It's a goal, but not the starting point. And I would agree with Schopenhauer.
0: So for all intent and purposes, there is no God and judgment and cultural relativity can reign and all kinds of other questions. I'd like to go down the road with you and discuss, but we're going to have to book you back to the show just to take that on. <laughs> One last quickie. You're an AI expert. 30 seconds. Are we ever going to have consciousness in the AI? Are you going to build a hardware? That will become meta-conscious.
3: I think we will certainly build very intelligent hardware uh, with intelligent, perhaps superior, intelligence superior to our own. But I don't think that silicon computers uh, will ever be conscious, uh, in and of themselves. They will not have conscious in their life of their own. I think eventually we will develop artificial consciousness, art- artificial All right, private I'm, I'm consciousness. Sorry, in life Doctor,
0: we're out of time. I want to thank you for sharing your experiences, your vast knowledge, and your insight with us, Dr. Castro. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.